The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. Bepositive.com.au Gympie Foam and Rubber and Luscious Slicks. With Anzac Day coming up, I've had the honour of sitting down to chat with a 97-year-old Second World War veteran. Frank McGreevy saw active duty in Papua New Guinea, serving as a medic and was injured during combat operations. And he's an inspiration that is part of the Anzac legend. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. (laughs) You're kidding me, aren't you? Frank McGreevy, thanks and welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you. You're a World War II veteran and it's a great honour to have you in the studio to talk about your experiences and your life. Let's go right back to those halcyon days when you signed up for service for Australia. Tell us how it all came about. Well, I was working for a firm called uh, Sydney Williams in Rockhampton and uh, the wage was pretty small and uh, all my friends, they had turned uh, 18 and in those days you had to register for the forces and so I said, well, I'm not staying here on my own, so I put my age up to 18. I was 17 at the time, and uh, I went to the uh, Rockhampton Drill Hall and signed a paper, and I went back to the company I worked for, and the chap in charge, his name was Kingston, Mr. Kingston. He said, you you cannot leave us, we're a protected industry. Uh, well, I said, uh, I'm leaving this Friday, uh, Mr Kingston, I, I'm in the army now. He wasn't too happy. But, uh, so was, what were you doing then at Kingston's? Uh, we were making uh, Comet windmills, uh, Sydney Williams shearing sheds, and uh, also we had a contract for the army to lay out cables that they installed on the back of the truck and run the cables out on drums. And uh, he said it was restricted. <laughs> and I said, "Ah, oh, too bad." So I said, "I'll see you after the war." And, uh, <laughs> I, uh, on the Saturday, I turned up at the drill hall and uh, we, we never marched, we strolled down to the uh, railway station and the railway station was uh, right on the corner near the Great Western Hotel. So we had to have a, a few drinks and uh, and then we got into the uh, train station and uh, a train pulled in and uh, it was just a, a local passenger train. There were no toilets or no nothing in the carriages. Then we arrived in Brisbane Exhibition Grounds. How was the feeling in the train from the guys that you were with? You'd signed up, you're off to war, you really didn't have any 
real idea, I'd say. Did you have any idea of what you were signing up for? Uh, not one bit, no. <laughs> no, I, I just didn't want to be uh, stuck in Rockhampton uh, without my uh, friends. I'll put it that way here. There were three of them and uh, we all went together. What was the atmosphere like on the train when you're heading for Brisbane? We were partaking of uh, quite a bit of liquor, so <laughs> there was a singing and carrying on, and uh, we thought it was just a train ride. Quite amusing, yes. I suppose roughly about 20, 20 to 30 of us. Mm. There wasn't only three or four of us, and uh, down to the uh, showgrounds. You turn up at the showgrounds. Exhibition grounds, yes. What happened then? Well, they gave us a, a big bag uh, and told us to fill it with hay, and uh, which we did, and that was our mattress. We, we were there about a week, I suppose, and uh, on the morning they would march us to uh, the Normanby Hotel. And the sergeant, he, he was a return man from the Middle East, he would uh, be at the door right on 10 o'clock when the bar opened. <laughs> so we, we, we would be over the road and uh, by the time he broke us off for a quarter of an hour break, he'd be in the bar and he'd be on his second pot. So by the time we, we got a, a pot, he would be singing out, uh, righto, come on, we're going back to the showgrounds now. So that was, that carried on for about a week, I suppose. At least a week, yes. And then we were told to pack up. Uh, we never had much army clothes. Well, we never had much at all. It was mostly civilian clothes, and uh, we were. Uh, told to pack up, we were leaving for uh, Gundawindi. Gundawindi was uh, the 29th Infantry Training Battalion. Just before we head to Gundawindi, I just want to get your recollections of Brisbane at that time. You've come down from Rockhampton. Yes. You've had a fairly wow of a train trip. You're walking across Brisbane. What do you recall from your days in Brisbane while you're walking across town? Because you would have got to see it sort of fairly close. Well, uh, along Brisbane, it was just the uh, the park there. Uh, I think they turned it into a golf course. I wouldn't be you. They used to park the cars there at exhibition time for uh, people to go to the show and... Uh, so there wasn't much to see. There was very little traffic. And uh, so we were just strolling along the uh, main road. Just a normal uh, stroll, I suppose, uh, you'd say. There was no marching or anything like that. It was uh, just a morning exercise. And that's all about all we did at the showgrounds. And, uh, that was a day's work. Looking across Brisbane, were many people watching what you were doing because it must have stood out to a degree? No, not really. There wasn't much population there uh, along 
I think it was Gilchrist Avenue, I, I wouldn't be sure. There'd only be an odd car passing and uh, no one took any notice at all. Like, for what I could see, uh, no one would sing out to us or we, we wouldn't sing out to them. And uh, <laughs> It was just a normal stroll. So at this stage, what are you finding out about what's happening and what's going to happen for you guys? Well, I can't recall a thing, actually, because... Uh, just like a little holiday to us. We were enjoying it and uh, we weren't doing anything and uh, having our meals and... Uh, the sergeant must have been a bit of a character, though. A couple of pots at the pub at the other end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> oh, he was pretty cunning. Uh, the tram had come along and... Uh, It'd start off and then he would dismiss us as the tram started so we couldn't couldn't get over the road because the tram was blocking us and uh, there was always one or two cars behind the tram so uh, he uh, used to get into his pot because when he op- when they opened the door, he'd always order two pots for himself. <laughs> so, so he'd have one drink and he'd be on his second one by the time we got over. So he wasn't the real regimental sergeant major. He was pretty relaxed by the sound of things. Uh, well, uh, no, not really. He was more casual than... Uh, we were, I'd say. <laughs> he was just enjoying after returning from the Middle East. Some of them were knocked around pretty bad. Did he give you any insight of his... No, he never um, never passed on any what we were up to or what we were going to do or uh, not a thing. Just a... Uh, a passing sergeant, yes. Heading out to Gundawindi, do you remember much about the trip out there? No, it was just a train load and uh, when we got out there it was uh, drizzly rain and cold and uh, we were just down from Rockhampton which was warm and... Uh, by the time we got to Gundawindi, uh, they had no army tents. They were confiscated all the civilian tents, and uh, we had to uh, uh, erect them, uh, which none of us knew much about. Uh, I suppose we finished up with a, a more like an American tent. Uh, with a centre pole, and uh, there would have been about eight of us in the tent. We were just on damp ground because it was on a little bit of a slope, and uh, we still never had much uh, army clothes. I can recall one Saturday, they said you can go to the dance at Gundawindi. We were out about 10 miles, I suppose, and uh, we pushed the truck Nearly all the way into Gundawindi, the road was slippery and muddy. I can remember this plainly. We got into Gundawindi about quarter ten, up at nine quarter ten, and uh, uh, we went into the hotel and the publican seen us and uh, 
He said, the bear's off. <laughs> he saw trouble. <laughs> so uh, we said, well, we're not going to get a bear. So we went to the dance hall and uh, the doorman wanted to charge us two shillings to go in. And the dance finished at 10 o'clock, so uh, we weren't going to pay two, uh, two shillings for a quarter of an hour. No. In the dance hall, because two shillings was uh, quite a bit to us. Funny thing was, we got on the truck and uh, we thought, oh, well, we've got to push this thing all the way back to the camp and uh, whether they changed the driver or not, uh, it went like a, a beauty. It never had to get out of the truck once. He delivered us back to the camp. So you never got to see any local girls out of Gundy? Not one of them. <laughs> no. No. No, we didn't see Gundy Windy at all, actually, and uh, couldn't get back quick enough to camp, sleeping on... Uh, well, we didn't know whether to put the ground sheet under us or because the ground was all damp, and uh, we were there oh, about a week, I suppose, and... Uh, they had one platoon of rifles. That was about 30, 30 rifles, I guess, and uh, the rest were using sticks as uh, uh, rifles. We were on parade, and they called out volunteers. I'm not quite sure if they uh, said the field ambulance or not. Anyway, I said to my mate, uh, come on, we're out of this. We'll volunteer for that. He said, what is it? I don't know, but I said, it couldn't be any worse than what this is. <laughs> so we volunteered, and uh, next minute uh, they were jabbing us with needles everywhere, and uh, on three days, about three days, a train took us into a train, and... Uh, off we shunted to uh, Townsville. So I would say uh, roughly about three three weeks from when we left Rockhampton, we were in Townsville, in the, what they classified in the field. So you've gone to Gundawindi, then you're back in Rockhampton. Did you get a chance to see your family or...? No, uh, we never even had time to... Uh, <laughs> Go to the hotel, they only stopped briefly and they gave us a meal at St. Lawrence. But when we left Gundawindi, they took us back to, I'm not quite sure, but I think it was a race course, and I'm pretty sure that the Americans were there then and they cooked a meal for us. So we had a meal there and then back on the train and away we went. You must have been pretty uh, adventurous though. You're 17 and a half, you're not 18, you're still sneaking into the pub for a beer. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, in those days the age was 21. 21 for a beer. But uh, when you're in the army, well, when you had that uniform on, you could uh, just walk in and order a beer. So... Uh, <laughs> It made all the difference in the world. Yeah, it was. It's one of those things that I I know sneaking into a pub myself when I was still in my before I was legal, and it was one of those things that it it tasted better. 
Uh, well, we had uh, up in Rockhampton, we had what uh, the beer was McLaughlin's. Forex, uh, I think, finished at Raglan, and McLaughlin's went from Raglan to just north of Rockhampton. And then once past Rockhampton, I, I think it was back to Forex then, or Blimba, and uh, we were arrived in Townsville after. Oh, they give us a mail in uh, St. Lawrence, and uh, in those days, they give us a mail in the dining room, and uh, all the silverware was still on the tables, they, uh, as if it's a civilian route, and uh, all the little teapots and sugar bowls and uh, was all silver, well, coated silver. So when we got on the train, uh, it moved about two feet and uh, it stopped. And uh, they said, everyone out, so we went out and uh, they said, well, someone's purloined uh, <laughs> some of the silver <laughs> from the uh, cafeteria. No one worried about it. The two-up game started again about four two up games along the length of the train and the lieutenant in charge of the train was just about pulling his hair out and no one seemed to admit that they'd purloined the silverware and uh, <laughs> when you come to think of it, it was quite amusing that we're holding the war up <laughs> over uh, a few silver silverware. So after about, oh, I suppose an hour, no one handed in, the away we went again, back on the train, and uh, we arrived in Townsville. What did it look like in those days? We didn't quite get into Townsville. The shunting was just outside of Townsville, and uh, we were loaded into uh, trucks, convoy, and uh, away we went to uh, a little place called Calcium. That's on the road to uh, Charter Towers, about 30 miles out of, out of Townsville. We were there, there was nothing, just the railway station. A siding, actually, and one side was, was uh, Woodstock, and the other side was uh, Reed River. And Woodstock, the Yanks were there, they had a fighter strip, which he used to run parallel with the road. And Reed River had medium-sized bombers, and of course we had to be in the middle of them. And uh, which, as it turned out, we never got any raids or anything. It did not worry us. We used to march every morning down to uh, either Woodstock or Reed River, and uh, of course the Yankee pilots used to take off on the airstrip, and we'd be covered with dust and they <laughs> delighted in zooming down on the top of us while we were marching and we'd scatter everywhere. <laughs> How did you get on with the Americans? Uh, very good actually. Uh, we did, yes. Couldn't fault them actually, no. So they were just having some good clean fun, or well, yeah, not I, quite clean. <laughs> just just uh, <laughs> Amusing themselves and covering us with little pebbles and dust and dirt. And we never had contact with them. They, they were separate camps of their own. And 
Well, I suppose it was about eight miles either way. I, I used miles because I still, still can't use the uh, kilos now. <laughs> so what sort of training were you doing at this stage? Uh, we were doing mostly medical work, uh, like stretcher bearing. Actually, I don't think the uh, officers or sergeants knew much more than we did. <laughs> In my opinion, we had to just about learn on our own. They would give us a lecture and straight through one ear and out the other, and uh, I still don't think they knew much more than we did. And bandaging and uh, tying up wounds and stretcher bearing, well, you only got to grab a hold of a handle and carry that, so uh, there was no training in that. So you'd signed up to be a stretcher bearer. Did you understand the implications of that at that stage? No, not one bit. I only signed up because I wanted to get out of uh, Gundawindi. <laughs> <laughs> so it didn't make any difference who we were. We went to, uh, could have been the infantry, could have been artillery, could have been anything, but we finished up with the 19th Field Ambulance. One day they, I was singled out and uh, they told me to pack up. They said, the surplus gear, oh, I forgot to tell you that when we arrived at Calcium, they gave us all second-hand clothes. We were, we were replacing cane cutters. They were let out of uh, army duties because it was a, a protected industry and uh, they were all mostly big people and uh, all of a sudden the colonel looked at us and uh, he's got a mob of uh, oh, a couple of hundred of us coughing and spluttering because we just had our <laughs> needles and uh, a lot of them had the flu and uh, I think he broke his heart when he seen us arrive. We had to sort out all the clothes. The quartermaster captain, he just threw it to our clothes and we had to try and find the ones that fitted us. They were pretty ragged. I was called out for some reason and I was told to pack up to put what gear I had in the pack and just take a pack for... Oh, they said, you'll be gone about a week. So I reported down the orderly room with a pack and there was a truck there and they said, there's your truck, hop in, so, which I did and went back into Townsville, the railway siding and uh, there was a train there full of vehicles, all trucks and one little guard van at the end of it and... Uh, by the time I found someone to talk to, a sergeant, he said, oh, put your gear in there. You gave him my papers they gave me. I never even looked at the papers. And uh, I gave him the papers and uh, he said, all right, uh, hop in that guard's van. And I couldn't get into it. There was that many people in there, uh, soldiers. And a couple of blokes said, come on, we'll climb in the back of one of these trucks which we did, we climbed in the back of the trucks and uh, after uh, the usual wait, uh, it shunted and uh, went a few feet and uh, I think the old poor old engine was 
Must be one of the first engines up that didn't keep Townsville. We got to a, a range and the train couldn't climb the range and uh, we were going up to uh, Cairns, Chiligo. The, the, rain, uh, the train went to Chiligo and the truck I was in, uh, one of the lads, he had a 22 nickel revolver. We were shooting at everything along the <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there must have been a few roofs we hit along the road or water tanks was the and uh, the range where the train stopped it must have been uh, the Coranda range I've worked it out because the train couldn't climb the range so we had to wait and wait and wait until another engine came out and pushed us up the hill. We went to a, we got to a place called Chiligo. On the left-hand side of the train, they, uh, the CWA women had set up all the tables and they give us scones, cakes and sandwiches and they said, uh, come on back tonight, we'll have a dance. So we thought, oh, that sounds good. So they took us out about 12 miles and said, we'll camp here the night and uh, it was Walsh River. No going back tonight, that's for sure. So we dug a bit of sand out and slept like a log. <laughs> In the morning, uh, they gave us something to eat, opened a few tins of bully and gave us a hard tack biscuit. They said, well, you could start marching and, and the trucks will come along and pick you up. At this stage, I still didn't know what I was doing there. It was the 29A Company, the 29th Infantry Battalion. Did you have any idea of what you were going to face yet? I had no idea whatsoever. Was it just hijinks? Was it just good fun with the boys? Oh, it was tremendous. We, we were... Just having a, a jolly good time, yes. It was more like a picnic out. The trucks picked us up and we pulled up for the camp for the night. Some days we'd only get about 12 miles for the day. Well, I don't know if we were the first ones to follow the telephone line up to Cape York or not. Anyway, uh, we stopped for the, uh, for the night and... Next minute, the sergeant's coming along singing out for Private McGreevy, and uh, I, I thought, what was they want him for? So I admitted who I was, and he said, you're the first aid man. So this was the first time that I knew that I was, I was the first aid RAP for uh, about 100 blokes, and uh, I was flat out putting a Band-Aid on, little longer. <laughs> This will never doing anyone up. So uh, he said, uh, in future, you travel on the the last truck with the mechanics. Oh, I said, oh, all right. And that was another argument, getting into the truck, because they were all had it like a, a home away from home. Their beds were laid out after a few arguments. And uh, uh, I said, well... I'm the senior man here, and uh, I said, what? I said, I'm the senior, I said, I'm a sergeant, and I'm still 17 years at this stage. Well, they said, where's your stripes? 
And I said, oh, when you get me to action, I said, you don't wear stripes. I said, you're the first one they shoot. So the corporals, they couldn't get their stripes off quick enough. So they bought the story? They, <laughs> I, I was a senior man. <laughs> uh, they didn't know the difference and uh, it was quite intriguing and quite amusing. Uh, I said, no, I, I won't ride in the front seat. I'll sit in the back of the truck with you. So uh, they were calling me sergeant. And, uh, <laughs> I, 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 was, I was the lowest one there, actually, and uh, I don't know how long it took. It took us about five days, I think, to get to Portland Road, Portland Road Iron Range. And when we got there, uh, we had two camps. Uh, first of all, we were camped in the jungle, and then they took us to another camp, and this time the ambulance had arrived, and our sergeant had arrived and there was a sergeant, Private Hulahan, myself and uh, driver Cliff Barber. I remember the name pretty plainly and uh, Joe, he was a sergeant. He came from Rockhampton too by the way and so a strange thing was when you come from the one town you seem to stick together. Stick together, yes. And uh, he said well there's an artillery mob just arrived. I said, oh, yes. He said, I want you to go down there and be the aid man for them. There's about, oh, they had about six 25-pounders or something, and uh, they were a return mob for the Middle East too. I just forget who they were now. They were either 6th or 7th Division, and all they could do all day was sing this song about Queen's Parade. I'd walk around all day singing this song and uh, I was the aid man there and uh, we were uh, sort of isolated because I was still in the militia at the time and they were all AIF people. The fact that you were militia and they were AIF, what what's the difference? The difference in those days, they were uh, elite and we were lowly, lowly. We, we were way down the bottom, and uh, they they never knew I was militia. What uh, was the what was the difference? Why were they so elite? Describe these AIF guys. Why were they so uh, elite and a cut above? The AIF, when they enlisted, they were, could be transferred anywhere overseas. And the conscripts, when you turned 18, you had to register with the Commonwealth as being 18 years of age and you were conscripted as long as your father wasn't a judge or a politician or someone. That was an interesting thing you've mentioned a few times about protected industries. Cane cutters had gone back to work because they were a protected industry. Yes. And you're also working originally for a protected industry in Rockhampton. Did many guys try and avoid the draft and try and stay in a protected industry, or was there more moving towards wanting to sign up? I would say it would have been about 60 40. A lot tried to dodge 
being called up, yes. What was the um, attitude towards those sorts of guys in those days? Well, once we uh, left Rockhampton, we had no contact with them whatsoever. Uh, so they just lived their life and uh, resumed working and uh, there was no ill feeling or anything. It was just we had gone and um, we were there. The AOF uh, resented us because we, we couldn't be sent overseas. But it never made any difference because uh, New Guinea was uh, part of Australia. It was controlled by Australia, so uh, militia could be sent wherever they wanted in New Guinea, which they did. And uh, the uh, AOF thought they were the best, I suppose. I think they were second, second or second, third. They were returned Middle East. Good bloke. Uh, got a lot of blokes, all from uh, West Australia. All big lumps of lads and uh, they were blasting out the uh, gun pits and uh, one uh, a rock hit his shin and skinned his shin pretty bad. And uh, up there we had uh, the Yanks, the 5th uh, Air Force had a hospital and they used to treat us too. All our casualties were treated by the Americans at Portland Road. He didn't want to go to a hospital anyway. And so I dressed him. I had pretty good. How were you with the sight of blood? Were you any good with that? Oh yeah, no worries. Uh, that wouldn't worry me one bit. I, I thought I did a tremendous job on his leg, and uh, <laughs> I finished up. I had to get him up to the uh, American doctor so we could get him on record for what happened. They painted it with Castellani's paint, which I was thoroughly against. I argued with the captain and the, the colonel told me, uh, he's a doctor, you know, and I said, yes. Uh, but I said, don't you think that's raw for uh, Castellani's paint? And, uh, oh, no, he said, uh, he's a qualified doctor. So I said, all right. So uh, um, they painted the Castellani's paint on him, which is red rubbish. And, uh, was it like an iodine, the uh, Castellani's yeah, paint? Yeah, like an antiseptic, like aquaplavian, only more powerful. And uh, after about a week, I, I'd never seen him. And uh, I said, where's uh, Corporal, or the, I don't know his name now. Uh, and then I shouted, uh, you mean bombardier? And I said, what are you talking about? I said, he's got two stripes. He said, in the artillery, uh, two stripes of the bombardier. Oh, oh well, I... <laughs> <laughs> So I said, yes, all right. So I seen him and I looked at his leg and I said, oh, God. And so I got the sergeant major and I said, look, I've got to get this chappy to the hospital. He said, when? I said, immediately. It was a Sunday, so uh, away we go. Uh, he got an old marmon something, uh, harmon or something. We put him in the back and uh, took him to hospital. The doctors were 
just about getting ready to have their lunch, and I said, found him, and uh, I said, Colonel, I think you should have a look at this chappy's leg. He had a look at his leg, and he said, uh, all right, get that operating theatre opened straight away. So uh, Sergeant Major took me and drove the, uh, the car, and uh, we said, um, the doctor said, oh, well, look, you, you might as well have our lunch now. <laughs> Seeing that we're going to work, and so after about three hours, he said, well, we saved his leg. I said, thank goodness for that. So the injury just got worse? Just got worse after it was painted, yes. Very bad. The Sergeant Major started talking about uh, the Middle East to the Colonel, and... Uh, the colonel said to the captain, uh, you better get a bottle. So out comes a bottle of scotch, then another bottle, and we're drinking away there. And uh, I said to the sergeant, Mate, we better get back to camp. And uh, he was a little tiddly by then. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we got in this truck and got out on the road and uh, blew the lights. So we had no lights, and it was black as pitch. And away he went. And uh, that's the most dangerous road I, I ever had. The, the Yankee trucks, uh, there was about six inches of dust on the road, and the American trucks would come up behind us, and he put, uh, put his foot down because he could see the road. <laughs> right. uh, and <laughs> the Yanks were determined to get around us, and which they used to, and uh, uh, we'd cop the dust and we'd be in the black, and uh, this went on for, uh, oh, took us about an hour to get back to camp, at least an hour. The lad who got his foot injured, he recovered, and uh, we eventually got on pretty well with the WA mob. Then we were transferred back to Cairns. We loaded a, a boat called the Islander and uh, the crew was celebrating. So the army put the captain in his cabin and, and kept a guard on him and the army started lo loading the vehicles. They loaded most of them, but we had to, the boat had to leave at a certain time, otherwise it would have sat on the bottom. We got away near enough, it was still bumping on the bottom. So we got away and we went to Cairns and uh, I re returned to my unit. That's when they asked us to transfer to the AIF. At that time I had a Q number. For well, someone that doesn't uh, know, what's a Q number? Uh, the Q number was the uh, militia, uh, the conscripted. And uh, my Q number was Q138012, I know it as well as do. And then uh, they gave me a, a QX number, that was AIF. They could send you anywhere they liked then. What was your thoughts when you got the QX number? Uh, oh, well, uh, I'm a uh, AIF now. <laughs> You're a cut above. Uh, yes and no. It didn't seem to make any difference to me, actually. Uh, I was just a, another number. Uh, 
and they could send us anywhere they wanted to. I suppose we were very proud that we were our 11th Brigade was then a, a QX Brigade, an AIF Brigade. We could be sent anywhere. And after that we were, did a bit of training. Coranda uh, uh, was a good camp. Uh, we still, uh, it was more of a sporting complex. We were camped in the school ground. And then we had half the hotel, the, the bottom hotel. Uh, the American submarines personnel, they had the top half. Uh, they had the front half and we had the back half. And in those days, the Coranda Hotel was a two-storey building. So they had it upstairs too for their... They were recuperating after uh, their patrols because they were knocked around a bit with nerves and things like that. And uh, Had you talked to many guys about what that experienced at this stage? Uh, no, not really. Uh, when crooked there, we used to swim uh, in the Coranda River, uh, just down from the railway station. Never no worry about crocs? Oh, no, no, no. Never, never seen any. <laughs> never, never heard. Oh, no. The only croc I did see was up at uh, Portland Road, Iron Range. Enormous big thing it was. Uh, an American had shot it. They had it in the back of a truck. <laughs> and that was the first croc I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It was a big thing too. And he was boasting how he shot it with his 45. Americans had the 45 revolver and our blokes had the 38 revolver. Because the Owen gun, it used 45 ammunition, so the Yanks used to like to get our ammo for their, so they could shoot, they didn't have to explain to anyone where their ammunition was gone, so, <laughs> so they'd get our ammo and they'd fire it everywhere and uh, well, didn't worry us, they were okay. We were the white-haired boys at Coranta. The people there used to love us. Uh, we'd get around and we'd be... All we had to do was do a march or a morning and uh, that was our day's work. And the Coranta Hotel, uh, not the hotel, the railway station, they had a, a canteen there and when the train came in at 10 o'clock of the morning, old Tess, we used to call her, she used to open the bar up. So uh, we'd be first ones in there, and when the train left, she would close the bar, close the door. So we'd be in there till oh, up at 12. <laughs> <laughs> and no one else was allowed in, so uh, there was about two dozen of us in there. She used to look after us like a, like a mother. And uh, even when we went to the dances, we were well, well looked after. What do you put that down to? Why were you so well looked after? We had no fights, uh, no troublemakers. Like the top hotel, we had part of the top hotel. 
Well, we never had a pile at the top of our house. They had a little gardener's shed at the back, a handyman shed, and they, our mob used to use it for a cookhouse. And they would give her, say, a bag of sugar. Or, so the cook and them, they were well in with the proprietor there. That was a woman used to run that one too. And uh, at the hotel, and uh, they never sell beer there because they used to sell their kegs to whoever paid the top price, and uh, they never had to pay staff or anything, so they were still getting their correct money for the kegs, and they were on a good thing too. They were happy, and we were happy. We had our keg every every dance night, which was a Saturday, and uh, we were quite happy. So it was still a big adventure for you? Oh, yes. We were still boys who were uh, still on holidays, so to speak. We were eating well, drinking well, <laughs> playing well, and uh, then we were told to pack up, pull our tents down, we did. And so when we, was this? What year was this? Still 42? Uh, this was 43. I was uh, a, a soldier then. I was 18, so I, I was legal. <laughs> and uh, put our tents down. We stepped out in the open for about a, a week. Uh, luckily, we didn't. We had good weather. I come in... At the dance on the Saturday night, they, uh, all the people there, they formed a couple of rings and they sang the, the Maori farewell. Uh, they knew we were leaving better than we did. The next morning the trucks come in and we loaded up uh, down to the wharf in Cairns and we were put on a little steamer. Uh, called uh, uh, a Dutch boat, it was a uh, Vanderlyn, and uh, away we went. We went outside the harbour and we joined up with the convoy. How many were in the convoy? Oh, uh, just a liner ships. Uh, <laughs> you couldn't count them, uh, because we were escorts and uh, ships, we had no idea where we were going. And uh, when we got up to the top of Cape York, we veered left and we went into uh, Thursday Island. We sat there for about a week, uh, just sat there on the boat, weren't allowed to sh on the shore or anything, uh, on TI. Then we found out we were waiting for an escort to escort over to a, a place called Moroki in Dutch New Guinea. The escort came and uh, away we went and uh, we landed in Dutch New Guinea, Morocco. What were your first impressions? The first one was uh, a rumour had it, you had to have your hair shaved off because the disease and uh, everyone had their hair shaved off. Everyone got severely sunburnt, which didn't count for anything, uh, which was uh, just a rumour. When we got into... Um, Morocco, uh, the same thing happened there. The uh, officers were uh, very smart. They put all the essential gear we want 
well, this is what we want badly, we want this badly, so that had to go on the ship first. But they'd forgotten that that would come off the ship last. So <laughs> when we when we got onto the uh, Meraki, which was just a swamp, and I mean swamp, you'd build a slit trench and uh, you'd only go down 18 inches and there was about 10 inches of water in it, so we, we couldn't do anything. We uh, had to do, if they come over, uh, give us a bomb or two, dive into the trench and uh, we're only six inches below the water, uh, below the lump of land, and uh, the water table was there. Meraki was just a, a mass of little, little blocks of dry land and a, a little creek and a, not a creek, a swamp I suppose you call it. Even when we put our tent up, which we had to wait for about a week for our tent, because 62nd Battalion was there when we arrived, and they uh, were, well they finished up calling the 62nd Hydraulic Battalion because they used to lift everything and they were unloading the ship. By the time we got our gear, uh, it had been all gone through and anything worthwhile was taken. So. We got our tents, which was the main thing, and uh, the cooks got their cooking gear and put our tents up. It was the only time we ever had to take our own tents or with us. The Yanks came in then, they were building the airstrip. We, we set up a hospital. I suppose we had two marquees. We could look after about 40, at least 40 patients at a time. We were classified as medics then. Uh, we had to look after the the lads. Did you know what you were up against at this stage? Well, we had an idea where we were going, and we had an idea that we'd be uh, bombed pretty uh, regular. Our first thing was camouflage, camouflage everything as good as we could, and uh, dig our trenches as good as we could. All we had there was uh, bombers, and uh, we never had bombers. We had, when the Yanks built the strip, they put a metallic matting on board. When the bomb hit the swamp, they were okay because it would just go down and uh, all you get up would be uh, mud and rubbish. But when they hit the strip, it was a different different thing altogether. Our biggest raid would have been 17 bombers come over and uh, they hit the strip pretty badly and uh, the fighters, we had some Kitty Hawk fighters there then, they had the Air Force, uh, they, I don't know how many planes they had, but when they went to land they had hit the strip they never had enough fuel to get back to Horn Island, so they, every plane was damaged on landing. So we had no Air Force then for a while so until they fixed the strip up and we went on a few patrols. They said there were a few Japs around, uh, went on small boats. We never, uh, oh, the patrol hit one lot and uh, 
we had one killed, but we were there 14 months in Maruaki, apart from getting bombed and uh, things like that, it was okay. Did you have any fear? Did you have any uh, worry about what might have happened if maybe you'd been overrun? Well, we did, yes. And uh, we had uh, our course mapped out where and how we'd get there. We couldn't cross the Meraki because that'd be going towards uh, Mr Nippon, so we had to go towards Port Moresby Way. Uh, but there was uh, quite a few rivers to cross and uh, we had to work out ways how we were going to uh, cross these rivers. Because we'd heard about Rabaul, how they got knocked around over there, something shocking, and if we couldn't hold the nips back, uh, we had to work out our retreat, yes. Oh, we worked out the rafts and things like that, how we'd get across, and uh, if it would have worked, we'd... Uh, <laughs> We were more of a garrison. We had one battalion there and two battalions. The others were on the islands between uh, Thursday Island and New Guinea. They were stuck on the all our 11th Brigade. Returned back to Karanda and same thing. Pack up, we're going home, so we packed up and come back to Townsville. So was that the end of your service? No, no. That was just the start of it. <laughs> we went on leave and then we went to uh, Strathpine outside of Brisbane. We were camped there for about oh, three months. Would have been bush in those days. All bush, yes. And we went into a, a ready-made camp. Uh, someone said it was the uh, Yanks were there before us, but... I, I don't know about that because they were all Aussie tents and the Yanks had a different tent altogether. They had the, well, the square one with the centre pole and we had the old lean-to ones. Was there an us and them mentality with, you know, the Americans on the other side or were you all one big happy family as such? We were pretty happy, yeah. We, we had no, well, I myself had no trouble with the Yanks whatsoever. I, I thought they were good. Settling in at Strathpine, what happened then? Uh, we were there about three months and we were told to pack up again. Down to the wharf we went and we put us on a boat, a Liberty boat called the Sea Snipe. And we were, oh, four bunks. Uh, four tiered bunks and uh, away we went to uh, Bougainville. We went to Bougainville in December 44. That's when we uh, actually got involved with action. What happened the first time you saw action? Uh, pretty scared. Pretty scared. Uh, especially when the shooting was around you. But, uh, as long as you kept your head down, you were reasonably all right. Anyone who stuck their head up and had a look around, well, they were only asking for trouble. Keep your head well down and uh, 
uh, even on patrols, if you uh, if you could keep off the tracks, you weren't too bad. If you were on the track, and well, you were liable to get knocked over, which uh, we did it. Uh, when I got wounded, I got uh, we were on the track, and uh, just the explosion went boom, and uh, the chappy alongside of me. Uh, we were in the trunks of a, a big, enormous big trees, and uh, we were in these trunks. And uh, I said, "Where's all the um, the shotgun right?" I said, "Where's all the blood coming from?" So we found my arm was bleeding, and uh, oh, uh, so we uh, stopped the bleeding, him and I, and, uh, and I said, "Well." What's wrong with Bailey? We'd better have a look at him. He was lying and turned him over and uh, he had his throat torn out. And uh, well, I said, well, I can't do anything for Dave. And uh, there was all the shooting going on and uh, hand grenades being thrown around and uh, singing going on. and. Uh, uh, I said the shotgun rider. Well, we're not going there anywhere. I said we'll stay, stay in this hollow and see what's going on. So someone said get out, and someone said stay where you are. So we stayed where we are. And uh, after about an hour, well, we threw. I threw a few grenades too. I don't know why I was throwing them at, but. I threw him away from where we were, and uh, after about an hour, uh, uh, all these uh, troops came in, and I said, where did this mob come from? They're all in nice new jungle greens, and uh, I still don't know where they come from. They're all our troops, and uh, they said, all right, Everyone's clear, the Nippon's gone, you can get out now. So, oh, thank goodness for that. And the bloke we were carrying, he had a head wound. And I said, well, we can't carry you. No, but he said, I can walk. <laughs> so, well, as long as you lead me, I said, all right. I got one side of him and the uh, shotgun rider got the other side of him. Because you're uh, injured yourself at this stage. Yes. Uh, I was injured, uh, <laughs> but I was, uh, I got over the shock. I'd uh, put a lot of blood with a couple of cuts and a uh, bump on the head and a uh, couple of shrapnel wounds and... Uh, I said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll lead one side, and he said, I'll lead the other, so away we went, which was nasty, but quite intriguing, actually, uh, because I was in Shorty Hall, he had all there ripped open, and I looked at him, and I thought, oh, well, he's not going to last much longer, and... Uh, but it was only, a, he had a bit of a paunch, it was only fat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so short he come out all right. And uh, How were you feeling at this stage seeing this sort of thing? Uh, well, I'd recovered from the shock and I was just accepting it. 
uh, I wasn't worried or anything like that. I, I just, uh, well, I thought this is natural. Uh, this is what we got to contend with, put up with. When did it really start feeling real that, wow, we're, we're in the middle of this and it's maybe not what I signed up for? No, uh, I fully expected it, actually. Uh, uh, a little bit of a shock at first, but then it, well, we thought we'd get knocked off, and uh, it happened. And uh, we were lucky it uh, we were lasted so long, and uh, we could we we'd been involved in it for oh, three three months, for going out on patrols and coming back, and. Uh, we thought we, our luck had run out, and uh, that was it. Were you hearing stories of things like what was happening in other areas, like Kokoda? Or were you getting reports of what was happening in other areas, say New Guinea? No. Even on Bougainville, we were north and south. Uh, Bougainville was... Uh, was the base called Torakina? Torakina. It was just a, a perimeter, like a half moon, and the Yanks were inside that perimeter, and they never went out. They just sat there, which and they had it all protected, mines everywhere, barbed wire, so they never went out looking for trouble, which was the proper things to do and uh, uh, our mob blame me blame or blame me tom blame me whatever his name was he decided that we were going to uh, clean up bougainville apparently from what i gathered macarthur said why don't you just let them wither on the rind just sit sit back like we're doing and uh, because the Japanese couldn't do a thing on Bougainville. Why is that? They had no food. They couldn't get reinforcements. Uh, had, uh, their ammunition was getting been there for a year or eight or eighteen months or something. They were growing their own vegetables or what they could or get the natives, and they weren't. Uh, looking for trouble, they they had never come down the perimeter, they were doing nothing on Bougainville. But uh, our mob decided that we'd clean them out, which was uh, just, a, I think we lost about 800 troops there, which was, uh, for cleaning up, which was, was shocking. I don't know how many wounded, uh, but Vietnam, we had more killed in eight months in Bougainville than Vietnam in 11 years. So uh, I don't know why, I don't know. So uh, uh, whether we weren't trained or uh, uh, green or uh, didn't know what was going on. Were you seeing much of that as a, as a medic? Ah, uh, well, when we'd go out in the patrol, you'd have to carry a rifle and all, so uh, 
uh, we were um, one of one of the lads. Yeah. We were some of them. Uh, some of us. Well, I could use a rifle because I did a bit of shooting before the war, and uh, some of them couldn't. Mm. You say eight hundred men essentially lost their lives on Bougainville. Are you losing many of your friends at this stage? Uh, I, I lost Dave, which, who I didn't know too well. He was uh, one of the reinforcements. When we were away the second time, we got another lot of reinforcements because uh, the battalions were broken up. Our battalions were 31-51 and 55-53 and 26th Battalion, that was our brigade because when the uh, lads come home from the Middle East they had to be uh, reinforced and they didn't want people from the training camps, they wanted experienced people. So uh, they took half our 51, half our 31, so they had to amalgamate into one battalion to make up a battalion. The same as the uh, 55, 53, they had uh, all their, half the troops went to the uh, 6th, 7th and 9th Division to make up their quota. So we had to, uh, we never had enough then for one battalion. We had to get two battalions to mix up to make one. That, so we could keep on the uh, 11th Brigade. The 11th Brigade was uh, Queensland Brigade, so we that was our brigade. Mm. Were you getting much news of other parts of the Pacific at this stage? Uh, no, nothing at all. Like, even on uh, Bougainville, we never knew what was going on down south. So no news from home either? No, no. Nothing at all. Uh, even in those days, uh, we never even knew that Darwin was bombed. So uh, that's how much they kept it closed, yeah. What was your reaction when you did hear about Darwin? Uh, well, actually, we were shocked and surprised that uh, they had um, so much bombing at Darwin. Uh, they had a lot more than we had. and. Uh, we were totally surprised, actually. Yeah. I was actually in Darwin for the 50th anniversary commemorations of the bombing of Darwin, and it was really kept very quiet. So uh, I was, yeah, quite surprised myself how much had actually gone on uh, in Darwin. But when you guys are actually on the inside not hearing about it, it must have been a real shock. Well, it, it was, yes. It, uh, 
we were a bit astonished, uh, you know, that uh, Darwin and Broome uh, were getting it over there, uh, and we weren't. Uh, I think at one time or twice they flew over Townsville, but they only dropped one, a couple of bombs or something, and I think all they damaged was a palm tree they <laughs> carted around in the back of a truck. Well, we were out at uh, Calcium when the bombing at Townsville went on and we never knew anything about it until about 12 months after. Is that a good thing? Well, no one seemed to broadcast anything. Hmm. How have you been left from the experience in New Guinea? How has it left you? Did it it change you? Uh, Yes, uh, I was... uh, in shock for quite a while. Uh, I, well, I was lost. I didn't know what to do. Uh, when I uh, d- did eventually get married, uh, I s- said to my wife, uh, "I think I'll go back to New Guinea." And uh, never, t- never did. But uh, I, I myself, uh, I did not like the New Guinea people. Why is that? Uh, I thought oh, you could trust them as far as you could throw them. That's only my opinion, anyway. So uh, you'd give one cigarette, and oh, yeah, you were the white-haired boy. Uh, Japanese would give them two cigarettes, and they were the white-haired boy. That's the way I looked at them. Mm. So they just played the. They definitely played it. Yes. What are your thoughts about the Japanese during the war? What are you thinking uh, about them as an enemy? Well, we had two Japanese lads in our unit. Right. They were uh, Ron Assay and Les Assay. They were, they were two Rockhampton lads. And they were their father was Japanese. He had a uh, billiard saloon and... Uh, a laundry saloon in uh, Rockhampton, and uh, I don't know. Well, we we protected them a lot. We kept them away from the front a lot, all the time, and uh, they were good people. Uh, I, I went over to Japan after the war, and uh, it was quite. Uh, Okay, uh, seemed to uh, more humour than anything else. Trying to talk, uh, make them understand what you wanted, and uh, uh, they they were okay. Well, then they were okay. Yeah. During the war, though, did you have animosity towards the Japanese? No, I, I can recall one instance where I was in hospital at at the time and uh, they brought a couple of Japs in and uh, the ambulances had uh, tarp, uh, like a tarpaulin flap on the back and that tie them back and uh, pull the stretches out and uh, as there were a couple of provos were pulling this stretcher out with the Japanese and he had it all 
uh, aid and the cord in the tarp, and I, I went to lift the tarp off, and the, the, the probo just pulled it out, pulled the stretcher out with the poor bugger on it, and, uh, and I said, you'd, you'd be a useless so-and-so. <laughs> And uh, I didn't want to see him hurt, yeah, the Japanese, yeah, when they pull the stretcher out. These guys are POWs and they've been captured and injured? Yes. They were brought into our hospital, yes. That was at Torakina. Hmm. Is that an indictment on you as a person, though, that you didn't have animosity towards them? Oh, no, I, I just... Uh, uh, when I read later uh, some of the atrocities that the Japanese did, it was, uh, uh, well, I, I thought that they were primitive. That they couldn't have known any better on what they did. Because uh, the poor old private, uh, the one above him used to belt him with a stick or something, and the one above him would belt him with a stick and it just went up the tier to uh, the officers. Were you surprised by the atrocities by the Japanese? I was when I read them, yes. Well, I never seen any. Uh, I was uh, terribly shocked, yes. When you went back to Japan after the war, what did you expect? I, I thought they would be... Uh, uh, you know, uh, a bit against us. Uh, I couldn't get over this Boeing business. Uh, uh, every time you'd go near one, they'd bow and you'd bow, and then they'd bow, and then you didn't. Well, you sort of didn't know when to stop. <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, this is because keep going all day, they're down. <laughs> <laughs> they were um, quite reasonable, I'd say. Mm. What do you think about Anzac Day and how do you celebrate it these days? Well, uh, sometimes I think back to... Uh, well, I had a personal friend got killed. Uh, he got a bullet in the tummy. That was in uh, Bogerville up when they, we landed on a, a beach where uh, Bogerville, uh, where no one uh, had interviewed before, no one surveyed it, what it was like, and uh, we landed there, and. Uh, the Japs were, weren't waiting, but it didn't take them long to get there. And they'd come in heaps, and they give us a, a bit of a hiding. Not a bit of a hiding, they give us a hell of a hiding. And uh, we had to uh, try and evacuate. Uh, our barge with all the heavy weapons, it hit the coral and, and stuck about 300 metres out from shore and uh, so we only landed with the light weapons and uh, 
uh, we could only do so much. Hold, try and hold them off and get out of there when the, as much as we could. So getting back to uh, Anzac Day, how do you celebrate it? What do you think of it? Well, I think of um, Sucker, that was my personal friend, uh, old Sucker, uh, where, that was his nickname, Sucker Bailey, and uh, I still think of Sucker, uh, his tummy wound, and uh, uh, which should never, well, it did happen, it couldn't say never. Uh, he, that upsets me a hell of a lot, actually. And uh, Bailey, when I turned him over and uh, seen, I think his name was Dale. I planned bowls one day with a bloke, and his name was Bailey. And I said, if I were you, I'd change my name. He said, why? Well, I said, uh, two personal friends of mine were named Bailey and they were both killed up in Bogueville. So I said, that's an unlucky name you've got. (laughs) 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 He wasn't too happy either. (laughs) Are you glad about the respect that you guys get now and after, you know, you've come back, are you glad that it's still remembered? It's only when we arrive back, uh, the Vietnam boys talk about uh, no one welcomed them back. Well, we were, we didn't get back until December uh, 44, 45, and uh, we uh, came back and the boat. Uh, went in the top end of uh, the Story Bridge in Brisbane on the uh, north side and there were two girls presumably going to work, they gave us a wave and that was our welcome home so uh, they bundled us into trucks and couldn't get out to uh, Maruka Maruka Red Bank quick enough We were, so that was four months after the war finished, so we were, no one wonders, <laughs> the war was finished, no one uh, waved us, no one gave us a hoy, no one said anything, so uh, we were just, uh, the uh, government couldn't discharge us quick enough. Uh, Did you expect some sort of Welcome home parade? Well, we thought we may have got a a bit of a welcome home, but um, we got nothing, so to speak. Uh, We had, uh, when we we went to Rabaul when the war finished, uh, we were watching a football match, actually, and it had just started, and next minute whistles were blown, and they stopped the game, and uh, they said, all 11 brigades returned to camp immediately. So we were bundled onto our trucks, back to camp, pack up, pack up, pack up, everyone's screaming, and uh, 
uh, lucky we'd uh, we never had it really unpacked so we next minute we're on a barge uh, taken out to uh, a boat called the Canembla and they had landing nets over the side and I looked up and God, God, I said, climb up and uh, that made me a, <laughs> a bit windy climbing up the side of this, I think it was the biggest boat we'd travelled on, the Canimbla. So up we went and uh, the bloke said, oh, you three come with me and uh, he gave us a cabin. Oh, I said, that's good. And the next morning, we were in a ball, and uh, I said, I'm going to dread this climbing down this landing net. And uh, they put down a gangplank, so we gangplank into barges and on the land, and we were in a ball about uh, three weeks after the war finished. And uh, we were garrisoning the uh, Japanese POWs. We we were there until December, till they brought us home. What are your lasting memories of the whole experience? Well, most of it, I uh, thought it was tremendous. I uh, enjoyed it. I enjoyed the comrades, uh, people I uh, lived in the uh, same tent for. Uh, Year on end, uh, well, they were like family. Yes, I, uh, uh, my uh, my father died when I was three years of age, so uh, I never had a father. So uh, I was just uh, like uh, living from auntie to auntie. Hmm. That was my life, I suppose. Hmm. Is it hard for you to recall and talk about these things, or is it? Just part of your life? Uh, just part of my life now. Mm. Does yeah. it help to talk about it? Uh, yes, it does, actually. It uh, re- relieves, yes. It, uh, I, I haven't spoken... Uh, you, you'd be about the second one I've ever spoken to like this. Whether I've kept it bound up inside or... Uh, they talk about this PTSD. Uh, sometimes I get upset, and uh, sometimes, well, I di- diagnosed with PTSD. Uh, it never came in till after uh, Vietnam War, anyway. Uh, uh, I think they call it shell shock because uh, when we're in, up at North Bougainville. Uh, we, we, we would get shelled daily. Uh, you could hear the primary charge of their gun they had up in the mountains and uh, uh, we were in a, sort of a bay and uh, over the other side of the bay was <coughs> we had an ammunition dump. They would send over about uh, eight or ten rounds a day and one or two of them would be a, a dud, but the others you could hear them swishing and uh, you didn't know where they were going to land. And uh, 
you, you borrow deep then. Mm. Did you ever think your number was up? No, not really. No, I th thought I'd uh, get through. Mm. Do you feel that the um, you said you came home and essentially there was no welcome home for you and then they couldn't discharge you quick enough? Do you feel a little bit cast aside by the government at this stage? What oh, did you do? Uh, oh, well, uh, I was uh, very disgusted with the way uh, they treated us. Uh, uh, well, they totally ignored us. They couldn't get rid of us quick enough. They, uh, I think the six and six a day they were paying us was, was too much for the government. They, uh, we, we don't know. We don't want you, mob. Uh, no one seemed to know who we were or what we were, and uh, even getting on the trams, uh, people look at us and wonder why they're still in uniform. Uh, wonder why this, and uh, wasn't because the war. The war had finished four months before, and uh, we were still in uniform. Because uh, they started discharging and halfway through, oh, about six months before the war finished. Uh, really? Mm. It was all, uh, your discharge come on a point system. Well, our, our brigade was a pretty young brigade. We were mostly uh, young ones and uh, the uh, AIFs, well, they were pretty old people. They were, you know, in the fifties and things like this, and we were we were just uh, well, I was twenty one. Mm. We were still pretty young, mm. a different category altogether. And so uh, that was life, I suppose. Mm. And all we did then was drink and drink and drink. Trying to forget. Yes. Uh, we always meet meet at the uh, used to be the Grand uh, Grand Central Hotel in Queen Street. Uh, we meet there, and uh, even the RSL uh, they didn't seem to care. They, they never worried about it because the RSL uh, they they popped up everywhere. Uh, where a branch at Windsor, and uh, th the president there was a ex-colonel, the vice president was an ex-major, so they were still running things, or thought they, thought they were. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get it out of the system. <laughs> well, a funny thing was, uh, uh, my brother-in-law, Alf, he was in the 47th Battalion, him and I used to walk up to the Crown Hotel uh, every day. The beer was rationed till 12 months after the war finished. And uh, 10 to 12 and 4 to 6, I think the hours were, that was the pubs used to open. And to get a beer after, you know, either had to get into the RSL or... Uh, so we were walking past the RSL at Windsor 
It was in the council chambers and they were unloading the beer for the meeting that week. So we helped them unload the beer, <laughs> Alf and I. <laughs> and uh, bottled beer was like gold. You, you couldn't buy bottled beer. And we unloaded, I, I don't know how many, I think it was in bag, bags in those days, bags of bottled beer. Anyway, we had the meeting and I, I signed for the uh, delivery docket. And uh, we're at the, at the meeting this night and uh, the president said, close the meeting. And Al, sitting alongside of me, he said, what about the bottled beer? Oh, oh, oh. oh, the president said, no bottle of beer. He said, what are you talking about, no, a bottle of beer? And Alf said, well, funny thing, he said, w we helped to carry it in the other day on the d delivery. Oh, no, he said, no, that wouldn't be right. And, uh, <laughs> of course, I said, well, uh, well here's a, a delivery docket signed by me, I said. Uh, so many bottles of beer. <laughs> and uh, of course Alf and I were black blackballed then we were troublemakers <laughs> we were virtually told to get out of the club that was my impression with the RSL in those days It's changed over the years? Yes, totally yes, oh yes it's uh, different different now they seem to uh, Cater for the troops, look after the troops, yes. You're nearly 100 now. And it's a, it's a milestone you look forward to. Is it something that you never thought you'd make? Uh, never never worried me if I made 100 or not, actually. Uh, someone said, uh, you know, you're 96. I said, so what? Uh, I said, I... I I don't feel like 96. I, uh, it seems just natural to me that uh, I'm plodding away and uh, 97. Oh, uh, the president said, no, you're 97. <laughs> no, I said, <laughs> so him and I have a, deba a debate about it every time. Well, it's been an absolute honour to have you here in the studio with me today and to recall your exploits during the Second World War and I'd say thank you to you and thank you to all of the guys that served but thank you for your service and really appreciate it and thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Yes, well, um, uh, more people have been congratulating me in the last couple of years than in my entire life, yes. Does it make up for it? Yes, it certainly does, yes. The women, uh, they, they look after me like I'm, uh, as if I'm a, a baby now. I, I <laughs> you know, I, I can poke along and they want to, help me and carry me and <laughs> well, I, I can poke along which I do and uh, get away.
Well, you are an absolute treasure, and thank you for sharing some time with us in the studio. Uh, Thank you for having me. I've uh, actually, uh, I've enjoyed our little time here. Yes, it's been uh, mostly interesting, yes. And uh, you've been excellent for listening. I'm sure many more people will. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, Oh, well, Mark, I thoroughly enjoyed our little chat anyway, so uh, I'd like to thank you for it. Thanks very much. This podcast is brought to you by Gympie Central Medical Centre. GMED is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick, ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions? When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the diagnosis right with Gympie Central Medical Centre. Contact them in Gympie on 54811873 or you can find them at 35 Excelsior Road. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cut to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose-fitting filling foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. They'll also help you get down and dirty with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. Aha, not so squeezy. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount and you'll receive 10% off the marked price. That's right, 10%. But that's only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. We can't go without mentioning Luscious Licks, 100% fruit ice cream. You can find them at local markets and all sorts of events. They are a really delicious alternative to conventional ice cream. Plus, the good news is Luscious Licks is completely dairy-free, gluten-free, and with no added sugar because there's nothing added. And best of all, it's guilt-free because it's healthy and it tastes great. Look out for Luscious Licks in the pink marquee at a market or event near you. And finally, the show is brought to you by bepositive.com.au in Yandina. Bepositive.com.au is your one-stop shop for first-rate beekeeping supplies and raw honey. It doesn't matter if you're just a backyard beekeeping enthusiast, semi-professional apiarist, or just interested in bees. Check out Be Positive on the Sunshine Coast or on the net at bepositive.com.au for a wide range of beekeeping equipment and advice that's backed up by more than 20 years' experience. Be Positive also provide apiary services including swarm relocation, hive setups, and Steve is always ready to share a wealth of knowledge about proper beekeeping practices. To get started, check out the online shop at bepositive.com.au and they'll promptly ship orders Australia-wide.